Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 6.6, the sixth episode in our series on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Brian first discusses archaeology of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park with park archaeologist Heath Bailey. Then Brian speaks with park ranger Flory Takaki about the cultural history of the park. Before we get to the conversation, if you enjoy listening to Everybody's National Parks, please tell your friends and consider supporting our work through Patreon. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Your financial support will help us to grow and improve the show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on the Great Smoky Mountains. Well, I'm here with Heath Bailey. He is the park archaeologist for Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Thanks, Heath, for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. So I want to start really basic. You are probably so sick of hearing this question, especially from Generation X people like us who grew up with Indiana Jones, but what is an archaeologist? What time span does that cover in your professional purview? Firstly, I uphold the Park Service mission, and that is to preserve unimpaired resources, cultural and natural, as well as to provide for the enjoyment of this and future generations. So I always say that firstly, but I wear a variety of hats. I review projects and undertakings to ensure that archaeology isn't adversely affected, essentially to make sure that we're not screwing anything up in the course of maintenance activities, building projects, this kind of stuff. I consult with the indigenous groups and our affiliated tribal groups as well. And I oversee survey within the park, and I promote research on park topics also. So you wear a lot of hats, and with those hats, do you cover not only prehistory, but including modern history, you know, the lost Elkmon as well, or do you just focus (laughs) on one piece of that history as the park archaeologist? It's a great question. Cultural history here goes back nearly 10,000 years. We have empirical evidence of human interaction on the landscape here at Great Smoky Mountains National Park, nearly going back to the Pleistocene. We don't have any paleo sites here within the park per se, but based on point typologies and what we know about the artifacts that have been found here in the past and then continue to be found, the culture history of Native Americans goes back between 9,500 and 10,000 years. And that takes us all the way up to the present through the various periods, the Archaic period, the Woodland period, the Mississippian period, that doesn't have a tremendous impact in these mountains, but there is some interactions in that time, people's growing corn, growing all the various crops that you would expect in the Mississippian period and the lower drainages, but you don't see the same brand of large centralized populations, Mississippian chiefdoms, if you will, in the mountains per se in that late prehistoric period. But that takes us through the Kuala Cherokee period, beginning in the late 14th century and all the way up to removal and beyond. Of course, the Cherokee people remain here to this day, and they're indelibly tied to the park. These are their ancestral homelands. And then all the way up through European settlement, through contact period, the Spanish, the English, 100 and 200 years later, through the industrial era, we have logging sites here. We have mine sites here within the park. And then the remnants of European settlers, as well as the park formation period, CCC structures. And that's kind of where the cultural archaeology ends, that park formation period. And then you mentioned Elkmont, too. That's part of it as well. That is sort of a layer cake of history, beginning with logging the CCC. And then a small town that sprang up amongst elites from East Tennessee that were donating money to the Parks Commission and then found what was a great place to have something akin to a country club and all its enjoyments there on the Little River in Jake's Creek area. It runs the gamut of nearly 10,000 years. <laughs> you think, too, about European settlement here versus Native American interactions here. We have about 200 years of European history in these mountains versus 10,000 prior. So it's but a flash in the pan when you consider the Native American imprint on the landscape here. I think it amounts to something like 2%. Right. I was chuckling because it's a lot for one man to tackle, it sounds like. It's a lot to consider. And luckily, I have a staff of people that will help me out with all these things. Well, let's start there. I mean, there's a lot. Has there been an accounting of all the archaeological sites that are in the park? Do you know how many there are? How big is that scope that we can consider? We cover 523,000 acres, over 800 square miles. Currently, we have nearly a 1,000 sites that are documented. 
my estimation, and it's a ballpark figure, is we have between probably three to 4,000 sites confidently within the Smokies. Now, if you think about it, the areas that are commonly traveled are roadways and our trails. So if you take sort of the 10,000-look view, all the points that are the arc sites begin to look like a trails layer, if you will. So that tells you that there's a great deal in between those lines, both prehistoric and historic. We have Native American sites at the highest elevations and the lowest elevations. Generally, the historic sites fall in the lower drainages. Well, let me chase down that a little bit. How many are accessible to visitors? And with some, do you not disclose where they are because they're so sensitive and perhaps you don't want visitors there because of the sensitivity and you don't want any type of human pollution? It's a great question. Our mission can come in conflict with itself with that in mind. We are to provide for the enjoyment and the access of folks on vacation so that people can enjoy and understand and educate themselves in park history and so forth. But at the same time, we're tasked as well with preserving archaeology, resources, cultural and natural. So it's a question that I deal with every day. I will say this, though. The archaeology, the cultural sites are largely accessible to visitors. We don't hand people a map of these things, per se, but they're out there for you. And those sorts of sites might be dry stack stonemasonry walls that you see as you hike trails. They could be the former foundations and the chimney stacks of European settlers that came before the park. Great Smokies, interestingly enough, has the largest collection of historic structures of any Park Service unit. And those are known sites, and we welcome the public to those places. And so there's plenty of that out there. Whether you're on foot on a known trail or if you opt to adventure a little bit and see some things off trail, you'll see all these markers of human history here. We had a great number of lookouts, CCC-era lookouts within the park. We still have three, and you can hike to those as well. Those are known sites. Where are they? Well, specifically, Mount Sterling Lookout is accessible near Catalucci area off the Mount Sterling Road. I believe it's State Road 1357. That's a short hike up to the Mount Sterling Lookout. That's a great spot. We have an adjacent campsite there. I believe it's Campsite 38, one of our most popular campsites in the park. And from there, you're offered a 360-degree view, practically, of western North Carolina, Tennessee areas of the park. Just a great hiking experience. A little tidbit of information, that's also the highest elevation CCC-built lookout of its kind in the country. Really cool place. Shuckstack, for instance, another lookout tower, is accessible off the AT from Fontana Dam. Mount Camerer, or what some of the locals refer to as White Rock, another CCC-built observation tower. A little different than the rest. That one's built with stone masonry. I was kind of leading you down that path because just in our experience for the week we were there, it's everywhere. Some of it's a nice surprise, and our kids had a lot of fun because they would see a remnant of a foundation or something like that, and they would let their imaginations run wild. So at least we have girls, and they thought that's where the fairies live because it was overgrown and mossy. So in their mind, clearly humans didn't build this, the fairies built it. So they had their own imagination that they were imparting on it, but it's everywhere. And I imagine that some of the trails themselves must be archaeological sites because I know probably some trails were blazed, but how many of those trails were actually... Native American trails to begin with, or perhaps European settlers blazed those trails way back when. We have numerous trails that follow prominent drainages in the park that were once traveled by Native Americans, sure. Some of them have names, some of them don't. Some of them are known to the Cherokee quite well. It's an interesting thing, you know, when I think about how people used to move about in the landscape, we think of our interstate highway system now, and I talk about drainages as highways. That's more or less how people moved and associated directions, if you will, in prehistory. In terms of archaeological trails, Little River Road, for instance, is a former railroad grade for the Little River Railroad. So when you're traveling along that, you're traveling along history. And that's not the only one of its kind. The road over the mountain, 441, is known as the old Indian Gap Road. It's not in its original orientation, but that road has long existed. So yeah, there's plenty of that. And there are plenty of roads that were old railroad grades. We have a lot of that. So it's not just a trail, but Little River Road, we've traversed that several times. It's a real live paved road conveyance. How do you get from one end of the park to the other if you're driving? Even that is in and of itself, you're kind of traveling down history. So you're very right about that. You know, one thing with Great Smoky Mountains, you share a contiguous border with an Indian reservation, in this case, the Cherokee Indian Reservation. What are some of the Native American archaeological sites that if one wanted to spend their trip looking at that? Where would they go and where would be some highlights? When you talk about archaeology in the East, you talk about archaeology in more arid environments like the West, 
And those two are very different things. The archaeological signatures of the East are largely hidden under feet of detritus, and it's all underground for the most part, unless it's a large earthwork, like a late prehistoric mound site or something to that effect. So I will say this. If you're standing at any overlook in the park, you're looking out on a cultural landscape that is the ancestral homelands of the Cherokee. In terms of actually seeing a physical archaeological site, you see plenty of it as you travel these drainages. We are just loaded up on both sides of the park, Tennessee and North Carolina, with Cherokee archaeology starting in, like I said, the late 14th century up to the present and then up to park formation. And in truth, it's known that there, even after removal, there are numerous Cherokee that lived in the park in cabins much like European settlers lived in. So I always make the statement that that boundary between us and Kuala is so arbitrary, right? We have Cherokee settlements in large settlements on the Akanalefi River that's shared with the Kuala boundary. That's well known. There are numerous significant sites within the Smokies that are sacred to the Cherokee that are very much involved in their history and the stories about how they came into being from the highest elevations to the lowest elevations in Tennessee and in North Carolina and areas further flung than that still. So those boundaries are just that. Uh, They're political and they exist in this time, but they mattered very little, you know, going back hundreds of years, right? We learned this when we were there. There's a true partnership between the Cherokee Nation and the Park Service in kind of managing those historical artifacts. Do you still have visitors who stumble across artifacts? And as a kid, we had a Boy Scout camp back home on Long Island, and I found arrowheads. And apparently it was a no big deal thing that this particular Boy Scout camp yielded arrowheads all the time. So do you still have visitors who stumble across those things? And then if they do, what should they do? It's an interesting tale. We wind up getting what I call like guilt shirts back from people that find them in their parents' collections years after they've passed. They feel bad about it, but they know they got them on vacation back a long time ago and they're sent to us, uh, whether they're projectile points or pottery shirts or what have you. It happens quite a bit. And then sometimes they're turned into interpretive rangers at the visitor center and they come back to us. I think that's great. And that winds up being a really great experience for people who might just stumble upon it. It really gives them a poignant piece of material that says, hey, there was somebody here before me. I will say, too, that if vacationers stumble upon something of archaeological value, of intrinsic human value that's research-worthy, that's a projectile point or historic, that they seek out an interpretive ranger or a law enforcement ranger, talk to them about it, understand where they found it, and maybe take some photos of where that spot was, say have a GPS, take a UTM. But by and at large, I implore people to leave them in place if it can be done. A lot of times, people don't even think about it until they walk away with it, and that guilt kind of sets in, you know, and, and, and then they wind up at the visitor center. And I, and I follow that line of thought, but by and at large, the best thing you can do is leave it where it is, If you think it's in a trail and somebody else is going to take it later, perhaps you just toss it a few feet off into the brush or into the leaves. And I think that's a good way to deal with it. If it's a diagnostic piece, something that tells us exactly where it came from and when in history, then perhaps that's information I would like to see. Otherwise, the remnants of toolmaking, etc., what people commonly refer to as like flint chips, debitage is what archaeologists call it. Just leave it to you is my thought. Yeah. I wish I followed that advice as a Boy Scout. I actually took the, <laughs> much to my regret, it's ended up in a shoebox, but no one told me differently. So I, uh, hey, I, I will say this. A lot of folks that have that understanding as a young person come to be archaeologists later, and that's not something uncommon. I have a lot of friends that started out as collectors in cow fields or what have you that do it in an academic way in this time. That's great, too. We all come around. (laughs) We all come around, right? This is part of my penance. So, well, look, (laughs) I I hate to give thousands of years of Native American history short shrift, but just in the interest of your time, if we can fast forward to when the first European settlers, which I would imagine the Scot-Irish, right? That's who first kind of started making their way, what is now the Smokies. What were they doing and what are some of their archaeological remnants that they left behind? Or am I right? Was it indeed the Scot-Irish who were kind of the first to push their way through? For the most part, Scotch-Irish and some German, and this happened after the signing of a few treaties that opened up these lands for European settlement, specifically the Dumplin' Creek Treaty in 1785 that ceded lands within the park and beyond. I believe the next year, 1786, was the Treaty of Coyote, which was signed under duress by the Cherokee. That's worth saying. It was signed at gunpoint 
and that ceded lands from the Little Tennessee River to the Little River, so that encompasses western portions of the park. That happened, like I said, 1786, and so we see an influx of European settlers after that. At that point, European settlers felt safe in these mountains to some effect, and we see people in Cosby area in the east. We see people in Elkmont, Sugarlands, where headquarters is, and elsewhere. We have, golly, I don't even know the total number because we haven't surveyed it all yet, but we probably have hundreds of miles of dry stacks, stone masonry walls that bound areas where you might pin animals, this kind of stuff. That's probably the first thing you notice as you're hiking around. And then we have fieldstone stacks. And that's something that I get a lot of questions about. What are these stacks of stones that are everywhere? It's an interesting thing. Anywhere you see these stacks of fieldstones, and they could number dozens to hundreds, those are the areas that were farmed historically within the park. I can't imagine the difficulty with which historic settlers would be farming in these acidic soils that are so rocky and so shaded. It's just so much work, right? So they pick up rocks like farmers do now. They pick up rocks and the nearest large rock, they see that they can't move. They start stacking smaller stones upon it. And it equals what look like these giant cairns over the course of growing seasons in the course of time. You see that quite a bit. And as we map those things in, we can map in essentially what areas were farmed and what areas were not. It should be noted that when you see, now that the forest is taking back over, so not old growth, but it's been a few hundred years, maybe even less, you would tell me, it's amazing how quickly that coverage in the forest canopy takes back over. And so you end up having this haunted place and it's hard to imagine the amount of labor to clear out that land, the rocks, the stumps, we're just using person power and horsepower or oxen, whatever the case may be. It's stunning amount of work and everything kind of grew back over. And what stunned us was how you said, you know, somewhere around the late 18th century, this transition started to happen. From there, up until even the early 20th century, how consistent the lifestyle was for settlers, the farming lifestyle, small holdings lifestyle, was very, very consistent. There didn't seem to be a lot of change. Is that a fair assumption, or have you seen that there were more subtle evolution over the years? You know, I think that in some way that stands as something of an assumption, and I only say that because of the influx of industry into the larger population centers surrounding us, whether Asheville, Knoxville, etc. Folks in Cades Cove, for instance, and areas elsewhere that are even further flung from those population centers, they were not untouched by those industrial developments. They had access to those markets. It was, I think, in its first hundred years, a hard scrabble life. You know, you think about rugged individualism and so forth in the making of the country in that time, so far as European settlers go. That was true. With the onset of the Industrial Revolution, there was a sea change in life in the Smokies. And I think that it was difficult for farmers to live that agrarian existence in that time. And they saw cultural changes that they too had to adapt with, or they would be left behind. And it wasn't too far behind that curve that the park came and upheaved the culture history in a big way. And then the forest goes through and all these sites are hidden under vegetation. It's an interesting evolution here in that way. But it's my job to bring those cultural stories out of the forest now that's 80 and 100 years old, what wasn't clear-cut by logging. You mentioned logging, and that's what I wanted to bore in on, is that I saw a map of what is now the park and how the park was completely and utterly divvied up by logging companies. So you talk about the Industrial Revolution. Is it safe to say the biggest impact the Industrial Revolution was there was a huge influx of mass logging into the park? And it's hard to imagine what the park looked like now. But again, you mentioned some of the logging trails along the river. What are some of the archaeological sites from this logging industry, which was no small operation, it seemed like? It seemed like it was everywhere in the park. Currently, 25% of the park is old growth. A lot of that's at high elevation in areas on steeper slopes that were difficult to bring timber to market. And even as you see photos from the CCC era, you see massive hillsides just completely denuded across the park. And the camps are oftentimes at the foot of these slopes and behind them is just nothing. It's astounding when you see that and then you look out the window now, uh, say from headquarters, you experience the park from a trail. It's a very different look. But The remnants of those logging towns, to address the question, are nearly in every drainage on both sides of the park. Elkmont, where the campground is now, 
You can't tell it, right, because it's a campground built in the late 60s, but that's a former logging town. Ravens Ford, some of the areas near the Koala Boundary, that was logged by and at large. There are old railroad grades along the Conalufti that you can see. And some of those archaeological signatures are the coal that you see piled up where trains would stop, load, and then take timber to market any number of other archaeological signatures as well. I think about Hazel Creek, I think, first, when I think about logging. We have whole remnants of those towns left, whole buildings. We have massive areas, uh, these sort of concavities in the earth where logs were held before they were put on trains to ship out to market. So whole historic districts, to answer your question, and whole archaeological areas covering dozens of acres speak to the logging history and the industrial history as well, as well as mining. We have a couple of mines within the park that remain as open pits. They were successful commercial operations for copper and other mineral resources as well for extraction's purpose. I guess that's what struck us about the park is that it had been a very dynamic area for years, whether it was just through logging, through farming, through Native Americans, as opposed to some of the parks out west where they're Native peoples, but generally speaking, the idea was you're seeing something pretty well preserved over the years. Mm -hmm. Where Smokies was a living, breathing, dynamic economic engine for a long time or a substance engine for a long time. And the other thing that challenged our assumptions, which kind of bring it up to more of the modern era, is we knew about Cades Cove and we were excited to visit Cades Cove. As you mentioned, the hard scrabble remnants of early settlers and cabin living. But there was a level of affluence that visited the parks as well. And we mentioned this at the top between Elkmont, but there was a period where it seemed like there were affluent people coming in from maybe bigger cities that started to understand where this park would be or could be is a great place to get out of the sultry heat of the summer too. So there was that element too, and there's some remnants of that as well. We talked about Elkmont and anywhere else where there's a remnant of that kind of vacation lifestyle. You see it most clearly at Elkmont, and Elkmont's an especially well-documented area because we have, for the longest time, let that country club more or less stand in state, and those buildings over the course of time have degraded and uh, sort of depreciated to where they were unsafe. And I joke about it a little bit, and that's sort of our newest archaeology, quote-unquote, if you will, because as we're raising those buildings, because the cost to maintain them, and we're talking about many dozens of buildings, and the human cost to have people assigned to maintain those buildings is such that we needed to raise them. That's happened in recent years, and over the course of decades, if you will, working with sort of constituent communities and the descendants of those families that had cabins out there. That's been a process ongoing. But as you see it now, just like elsewhere in the park, what's left are the foundations, the walkways, the bridges, and the chimney stacks of Elkmont. If you talk about affluent history, you see that there relative to the, the parks commissions that came together on both the North Carolina and Tennessee side. We're working on interpreting that history a bit better now as we're addressing the Elkmont issue. And it's an interesting history. The Smokies, so that we could get maximum acreage for preservation's purpose, combined the efforts of two states. And later we acquired lands from TVA north of Fontana that was another large acreage track that accounts for our current legal boundaries, if you will. And of course, TBA is a Tennessee Valley Authority. It's funny you mention it because I'm looking at a picture right now of, I'm guessing it's from the 20s or turn of the century, from Elkmont, and it's a fellow in tennis whites. And I just don't know if I would associate country club guy in tennis whites and Great Smoky Mountains, but that was part of the challenge as well, that this also existed there. Again, part of this theme, which is why you have such an interesting job, and <laughs> a very big job it's, it's, of 10,000 years. part of the fabric yeah. of this place. Some of those histories began in places like Asheville, too, like at the Grove Park Inn. One of our famed photographers, George Massa, worked there, was a blue-collar individual that worked there, but was also very well regarded and had access to elites in Asheville. And he was a huge part of telling the story of the Smokies. And he was an Asian-American individual and has a huge part in creating the park and convincing people of relative affluence that, yes, you need to donate monies to the North Carolina Parks Commission so that these amazing places that I've taken all these photos of can be preserved in perpetuity. And 
his photos are amazing. You know, he would take his large format camera and his tripod on long hikes up to the highest peaks, starting in the lowest valleys, and he just loved it. So it's a diverse landscape in terms of the culture history as well. Not all these things are told in the archaeology, but there's a lot to making this park. There's a lot to the culture history of the park. And I think that's a very deserving point as a takeaway. It's a great note to end on is that that's what struck us. The depth of the history of the park as a dynamic place was something we really under anticipated and underestimated. And that was a great part about our trip and learning that and seeing that up close. And by the way, great vistas and great hiking and camping. And it's a beautiful place. We can get to that. But this was a very necessary element to understanding where we are. So a couple of questions, Heath, and then we can let you go. Just quickly, you mentioned 25% or old growth. Where would you suggest if we want to see some old growth forest? What are some of the more popular places you can go? Clingman's Dome, Mount Lacante. Where do you think one should go? You can actually see some of that along 441 to some effect in, in the vicinity of what people consider to be the Mount Harry area. There's some old growth in there. As you hike up, say, Snake Den Ridge and Cosby, there's some old growth in there. As you visit some of these developed areas like Greenbrier, Cosby, elsewhere, it doesn't take that long to begin to enter into patches of old growth. That's not the case across the board, per se, because we have archaeological evidence of logging above 5,000 feet near Clingman's Dome. But those places come to mind right away. There's quite a bit of old growth in the Cosby area, actually, as you hike those trails from the drainages up to the ridges. Just frankly, from our experience, it's all around. You said 25%, and that may seem like a small number, but it's all around. And then when I saw that map of how divided and dominated the logging companies had the park, I'm pretty glad there is 25%. It seemed like it could have been much, much less. So it's all around there. I will say too that Albright Grove in Cosby comes to mind right away. Those stumps out there, they were cut in the logging era. So that ended in the 1940s. There's still stumps out there that are cut well above head height. And some of the boils that came off of those trees remain in the drainages. And they've been there since the 1940s. They could be eight and 10 feet wide. Wow. Albright Grove is a great place to go, about a two and a half mile hike up to the grove itself. And there's a loop hike up there and you can see quite a bit of old growth, very impressive, big plum trees up there. We like to ask a lot of our guests, what's your favorite spot in the park? And I know it's probably hard to choose, but do you oh, have yeah. one or do you have a favorite <laughs> moment where you've been in the park and you realize this is a special place? We get 11 million visitors here, which is an astounding number. We are annually the most visited park of all the units. But I'll be honest, it shouldn't deter visitors in the backcountry. You honestly don't have to go too far from any trailhead to no longer see folks, right? I lean a little bit out to the North Carolina side of the park. We talked a little bit before the interview. I'm from Western North Carolina. Yes. So I loved North Carolina. But I will say specifically, the Balsams area in the uh, southeast corner of the park is one of my favorite places. The Cataloochee area is hard to beat. You can go over there, of course, and see uh, the elk herds and really appreciate the culture history as well in both Little Cataloochee or the old town of Ola. There's still a standing church there in Big Cataloochee, numerous cemeteries, the Caldwell House, the Jarvis Palmer Place. So I would say the Balsams because it's quiet. And there are numerous trails that traverse it, and, and Cataloochee probably. Right. Those, are, those are perhaps my favorite. And look, all great for families. Too. We went to Cataloochee and just with our daughters, and one daughter just wanted to sit by the river and draw, and the other one, we went to hike on the Boogerman Trail, mostly because she thought it was funny that it was called Boogerman. It ended up, despite the name, which is, it is hilarious, that was one of my favorite hikes that she picked out. Uh, that was very uh, family-friendly sure. to do. But we have not been to Balsam. And as we discussed before we started rolling, we're trying to figure out our next trip down there. So this is now shot to the top of the list of where we would uh, plan our tent peg. Do you know the story behind the name The Boogerman? No. Please tell me. Boogerman is Robert Palmer, an individual that lived out that trail. And he's a very quiet young man. And few words were spoken by Mr. Palmer as a boy. And I think this, as I'm told anyway... When he was prodded to tell the class his name when he was a young boy, he came out to the teacher and said, Boogerman. And it stuck with him the rest of his life. Poor kid. Um, 
And so that's how we know the trail now. It's Robert Boogerman Palmer, and he had an old homestead out that trail. So kind of a neat little anecdotal piece of information. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So and it, again, as a trail, even if it was just the Palmer Trail, it is a pretty magical little hike my daughter and I went on. Well, listen, Heath Bailey, park archaeologist for Great Smoky Mountains National Park, thank you very much for your time. I've learned a lot. And I promise you, if I find an arrowhead, it's not going in my shoebox in my bedroom next to my G.I. Joe toys. I promise you that this time. All right. We'll shake on it. Look forward to uh, seeing in the smoky sometime, hopefully. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Heath. Take care. That was Brian speaking with Heath Bailey, park archaeologist for the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now Brian speaks with Flory Takaki, park ranger at Great Smoky Mountains National Park's Akanalefti Visitor Center. I'm here with Flory Takaki, park ranger, resource education division, at Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Hi, Flory. Welcome. How are you? I'm fine. How are you today? Uh, really good. So thank you for taking some time out to talk about the cultural history of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And I'm pretty excited for this conversation. Not to prejudge too much, but I think Great Smoky Mountains, given where it is in the United States, closer to the eastern seaboard and a big transitive area for a lot of peoples. It has a very dynamic cultural history, not to give short shrift to some of the parks out west, but there's been a lot of changes over the years. So let's just start with the basic. Who lived in what is now the Great Smoky Mountains National Park originally? The Cherokee, Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indian presently, at the time just the Cherokee generally, lived in a, a vast area. They have their history listed as more than 10,000 years in the area. They believe their birthplace, and they list their birthplace just uh, shy of Brayson City, North Carolina, and a place named Gadua. What were some of the attractive attributes of what is now the park, which caused them to kind of plant their flag in what is now the park? What were some of those attributes you think attracted them? According to the Cherokee, they were created here by their maker. It didn't attract them. The Cherokee say they were created here, and we highly recommend when people visit the park that they go to the Museum of the Cherokee Indian and learn more about the Cherokees' origins here in the region and their creation in the region. Although Cherokee were already here, when the non-Cherokee arrived and settled in the region, the relationship between the Cherokee and non-Cherokee was companionable. But beyond that, we offer information on that relationship, but we do not speak for the Cherokee and their history. We speak with them, but not for them. That's actually an interesting point. So what you're saying is check out the museum, and that's about the size of it because you don't want to be in a position of speaking for the Cherokee. We would not speak for another peoples, especially a peoples who have a history of being in the region from eight to 10,000 years. They are well able to speak for themselves. The park was not established until the 1930s, and so we speak for the park, for the National Park Service and for Great Smoky Mountain. But we do not speak for the Cherokee. They were here first, and then the settlers and resettlers arrived, and people started to homestead in the area. But we would not speak for them or their culture or history, not when they are right there in neighbor and they are so close. I'd like to talk about that a little bit further, but one thing you mentioned is when the European settlers made it. So who were the first? The Spanish arrived, or Hispanic peoples arrived, with DeSoto, for example, during explorations. In the early to mid-1700s, we see people arriving from elsewhere. We do hear a lot about the Scotch-Irish, but we also hear about the Germans and the English and the Dutch and people from other areas. They may not have only been European. They may have also been non-European. There was a percentage of black individuals who also moved to the area. Ah. And so when we talk about movement of people, people moved for many different reasons. But it was during the time of that, that truly, although they were here some in the early 1700s, that mid to late 1700s, we see larger groups of people moving in. Well, I want to chase that down. When you talk about people of African descent moving into the area, were they moving there on their own volition or were they part of slave trade or a little bit of both? We don't have a lot of information on that at this time. It is currently a topic that the Park Services is exercising research work in. But many of these people arrived in ports like Philadelphia or New York or something along the coast and moved inland. This was not usually their first stop, but may have been their second or third stop and this is where they decided to stay. 
why would they leave a coastal town or a port town like Philly or New York or Boston? And why would they end up, generally speaking, in what is now the park? The same reason we moved today. They may have left Europe for purposes of religious or political or financial freedom. When they arrived at these ports from the ocean voyage, they may have never had intention of stopping in a city. They may have stayed in a city or a town, and for whatever their personal reasons, whether it be financial, economic, or social, they moved on. It is not uncommon today for people to live in one state and an economic situation or a political situation causes them to move to another state. For example, in the state of North Carolina, we have income tax, and over in Tennessee, we do not have state tax. Well, one thing I've learned over time is labor mobility is part of what makes America unique, among other things. Unlike other countries, we have the ability to move around. So it's interesting to see culturally that this existed even with our early settlers. But let's get to some tough history. At some point, the Cherokee were there. And then at some point, we had new European settlers who were Americans. Can you talk a little bit about that displacement? What happened and when did that happen? By the time the Trail of Tears happened, many non-Cherokee were living in similar communities with the Cherokee. So you have both non-Cherokee and Cherokee farming and surviving and living in a community relationship on the south side of the park, not the traditional town community that we think of up in the northeast. But both in Tennessee and North Carolina areas of the park, these people were working together side by side. And whenever the removal arrived, it was not different than many removals of people in the United States. And it has been done for more than one population. But the Cherokee will tell their perspective of the removal down in their facilities in the museum. When we have peoples of different backgrounds living cheek by jowl and close together, how are they interacting? Was this uh, small holding farms? Was it industry? What were they doing within the park? Farming was the primary way of life for people who resettled in this area. We don't have industry at this point. Logging has not arrived at this point. At this point, really what we're talking about is some type of early agricultural system. Certain areas in the region, which now encompasses the park, would have had some flatter land, such as in Keats Cove, potentially. Other areas, like just outside of the Sugarlands area in Gatlinburg or here in western North Carolina, it was not often big, large tracts of corn or wheat. It may have been smaller plots because they'd have to remove the trees in order to create that open space. The Cherokee themselves had been farming for thousands of years before the resettlers arrived. Do you think the settlers were able to importune some of the practices of the Cherokee farming into their own practices, or were a lot of these farming and agricultural practices imported from elsewhere? It could have been both. It depended upon the individual who had resettled in this area. Just as today when someone moves into a community, how involved they become in the community that's already there, or how close to home they stay and not intermingle with the community. It was no different then than it is now. But certainly the Cherokees shared their knowledge of farming. For example, resettlers often brought things with them like wheat, which certainly does grow in this region, but doesn't last long because of the high humidity. So corn was an item offered to them, to the resettlers by the Cherokee. And so corn became king in the region. As long as it's dry and uncracked, it can last for thousands of years. And so if you have either Cherokee or resettlers who have a year or two of bad crop due to weather conditions, you have a crop from maybe a year or two or three years ago that will sustain you through the winter until you can try again. So certainly they did swap practices. But it wasn't a hostile situation at this time. So like everything, when peoples of different backgrounds are living together, there's, it's usually a complicated history on both ends, but clearly one was learning from the other. So fast forwarding, we now get to the 20th century and there's a notion of let's create a public space around the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. How did that come about? And culturally, what happened with a lot of the folks that were still living within the park boundaries? Were they grandfathered in? Were they removed? How did that come together? By the time we hit the early 1900s, the early 20th century, Cherokee have remained in the area. Some moved back from Oklahoma 
but there was the group that remained here that was here. And we have quite a number of settlements within the western North Carolina, East Tennessee area. Most of those were farmers, but the logging industry was in swing and it would only take 20 years or so for it to be a replacement for farming. And so you have a number of these people who have now lived here in some cases for generations, both within and without what is now the park boundary. The park system started in 1916 with the Organic Act. And what you have is you have people who are going west to visit these large national parks, parks where the government has owned land and they have now chosen to make national parks out of them because for whatever reason, it has some value that cannot be found elsewhere, such as Yellowstone with the geysers or Grand Canyon. And there were people here in the East who started to think we should have something here east of the Mississippi River, something where people from this side can go to. And in that process, they looked not only here in what is now the Smoky Region, but all over the midsection here of Central Appalachia, Southern Appalachia. And what they found was, with the population, it really was potentially viable, but the federal government owned no land. And so there was no way to take federal land and create a national park from them. How did this differ than how the parks treated the people who were living within Shenandoah? Can you compare and contrast that story? By the 1920s, the logging industry here was in full swing. And what you have is people who have left their homes, their lands go back to wildland, so to speak, from their field area, and they've been working with the logging industry for years. And we were nearly, oh gosh, maybe 60% of what is now the National Park had been logged. 20% had been cleared for farming. So 80% of the land had been denuded for one purpose or another. And as people were looking to create a National Park, this land became attractive because it was less costly than other lands. But again, because the federal government didn't own it, it had to be purchased by the states of Tennessee and North Carolina and also the Rockefeller Foundation. The land was purchased and then given to the federal government to create a national park. And that's the first time they had happened. Other parks, as I mentioned, such as not only Shenandoah or Yellowstone or Yosemite, they were federal lands to begin with. And so turning them into national parks due to their amazing features was not the effort that it was to try and purchase lands to create a national park. And I think one thing that's not completely unique, but certainly is an emblem of Smokies, is how you preserve and promote the history through some of the homesteads of the former inhabitants. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those attributes and how you're preserving some of that history of the inhabitants who preceded the park? Well, because the park was so heavily owned by private individuals and by logging companies, the state of Tennessee and North Carolina were purchasing properties from private individuals as well as from the logging companies. When the property was purchased and offered to the National Park to create a national park, one of the concerns was that people were still living on this land. So there was notice given that there were a few options. Someone could either take the price offered for the land and move. Some people were given the option to stay and continue living on their land until their death, but there would be no hunting or no fishing. That would have to stop. And some people willingly took the funds. They had seen that the lands they had had gone fallow, and they moved on to places such as Chicago, where the automobile industry was, electricity was stable, where they thought there were jobs to maybe improve their situation. Other people chose to stay. And they continued living on their property until their death, and then the property reverted fully to the Park Service. Some people didn't want to go. They thought that the Park Service was not paying them fair value, and it was a fight. Some of them took the money and left grudgingly. Some tried to fight, but the ownership went to the federal government. They took their funds. Some moved just simply outside of the park. Many Cove residents just moved on towards Knoxville and Townsend area to remain close to their home places. When the Park Service was creating the park once they owned the land and the people had left, they were having the Civilian Conservation Corps 
through President Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal Act to employ young men to replant trees, build roads, build bridges, and that type of thing. During that process, homes were burned or torn down in order to make space for this creation of a place that was natural and wild. The Park Service saw the value of maintaining some of this historic home sites, especially starting off with log homes. By the time we're talking about the park being formed, we're talking in the 1930s. The park itself was actually established in 1934. So much of this work, this background work to create the park was done in the 1920s. The park had many homes that were being built from the lumber industry. Sawmills were prevalent, and it's much easier to build your home out of a board than it is out of a log, a whole tree. So the Park Service decided they would save some of these log structures and leave them for people to see. There was some pretty amazing workmanship in those log homes. Some people had lived in their homes for several generations by this time. And as the park continued to move forward to remove structures, they also decided that we possibly need to tell more modern time history when those log homes were built, certainly, but also those homes that were made out of milled lumber, that there was so much rich history and value of that history from the Cherokee on through to their present-day time in the 1920s and 30s that they decided to preserve several of these structures. There's now more than 80 historic structures within the park boundary. 80. Wow. You kind of touched on a lot of things there where you were talking about the inhabitants and how they move through the park, but also hitting with the CCC. And I mean, it's also has to be a big part of the cultural history of the park is the CCC. Did any of the CCC boys stick around? Is there any documentation of that? Did anyone say, I'm going to live right around here because I've fallen in love with it? Do we know anything about that? Some of the men that worked were from far away, some were close. The Cherokee, for example, we have some information that states that they lived locally and they were picked up daily and used as civilian conservation corps workers. But it was primarily those traditional young men who came from somewhere else and moved into the camps within the park boundary. They may have. After they were done, we would not have kept records of who moved to the local area because they fell in love with it, or if they went back home to parents and sweethearts and married and settled back at home or if they moved here. We do know that I've been here for 26 years. Through time, I have met a couple dozen or more young men now in their 80s, 90s, who worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps and remember being part of the park reconstruction. Wow. One other question I have for you is when you spoke about the families who were being displaced and those who stayed around, what was the date of the last family that was grandfathered in? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I don't remember when Kermit left. The last family that had a lease was in Kate's Cove. He passed on. They had some livestock, some herd of cows that they grazed out there. And when he passed, the family had a specific amount of time that they were allowed to finish up their business before they had to move. And it was, gosh, I want to say it was in the 90s, but honestly, I don't have a date for you. The 90s. I would have guessed the 60s, but yeah, it shows you. So in recent memory, you still had that legacy of the inhabitants were still, or at least some of their livestock were still hanging around in the park. That's more than I would have guessed. Well, listen, Flory, I have one more question for you. We ask a lot of our guests their favorite stories about the park. What's a favorite moment of yours working in the park, or is there a favorite spot that you want to share with us? I would say that the Great Smoky Mountain National Park is home for me. My children were born here. They were raised here. I live in a small community just outside of the park. And I can't say there is any single story or hundred stories that just speak out to me. I can say one of my favorite things to talk about are cemeteries, and burial customs, and the reason for that is because there's so much that has to tell us. These were people who were here over the last 100, 150 years who have settled the area, who have become fabric of the Smoky Mountain National Park, not just by name or by where they lived, but Cates Cove. There were people in there as early as 1709, 1724, 
And we are still having people who have direct relationship to families who lived within the park boundaries who are still being buried within the park boundary. And when you talk about that much history, it is a quilt of knowledge that is is there in our cemeteries that speaks to us about life and death and hardship and struggles and trials and births and marriages and just stories one after another that we have from the past that allow us as park rangers to bring alive any part of history from within the smoky boundaries into the present to allow visitors the opportunity to connect to the past, to see perhaps some differences from where they're from, but also to see how many similarities that they want their children born healthy, raised healthy, educated, and married with families of their own. And that's not far from where we are now. And to be able to connect peoples, whether it be Cherokee or settlers, from then to now is a wonderful experience for a park ranger as a visitor comes up and asks questions. That we are given that privilege to take the entire story and bring it forward. And one of those venues to do that is when you take people to a cemetery or on a a burial customs program and offer them what you think of as a sad time, which is really a time that they celebrated the lives of their families. And through homecomings, which the Park Service does provide ferry opportunities several times a year to several cemeteries over on the North Shore side, which is the Hazel Creek area of the park by Fontana Dam, so that those peoples who are still here now can go back and clean and care for and have homecomings through cemeteries. What an amazing touchstone. It speaks to you through the generations when you can see those burial markers. I guess you, know, you come for the great vistas and the great hikes, stay for that cultural history, which you, Flory, have so well imparted on us. So I think that's a great spot to end. Thank you very much for your time. Again, Flory Takaki with Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. As always, show notes and links to resources for this episode may be found on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, please consider clicking on support our show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybody'snationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.